People act like it's no big thing. Oh, it's just Twitter. But this is where public conversations happen. This is the public square. And this is where people access information. And this is where people learn what ideas are okay to talk about. You know, Twitter has decided you can't say certain things. Certain things constitute hate speech. Certain information is dangerous and you can't publish that information. You know, they have a huge, huge, huge influence. And this is a corporation. This is a company that is determining what information we can share and access online, never mind what we're allowed to speak about. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is another Megan, a Megan spelled with an H, just like me. She is Megan Murphy, and she's a Canadian journalist, public speaker, and podcaster with a longtime focus on women's issues. In 2012, she founded the website Feminist Current, which took a notably second-wave feminist stance on third-wave feminism and the lens through which that movement viewed things like pornography, sex work, and the sex industry more broadly. This never made her popular with extremely online millennial and Gen Z feminists, but what really got Megan in trouble was when she began speaking out about the ways she thought the new gender movements could harm women and girls in the name of inclusivity. Now, by got really in trouble, I mean she was permanently banned from Twitter. Permanently. Not for saying anything outrageous, but for, as she sees it, a few seemingly banal tweets about who counts as a woman, a man, or anything else. Now, obviously, being kicked off of Twitter is not the most devastating punishment a human being can receive. But if you're in the media, it has serious consequences. And that's why I wanted to talk with Megan this week. In the wake of Elon Musk becoming Twitter's biggest shareholder recently and inviting speculation that this might shift the platform in a more free speech direction, I wanted to talk with Megan about what it really means to get kicked off of Twitter, how it does or doesn't impair your ability to make a living, and how you build back on other platforms when you're entirely financially reliant on audience support. This is a conversation about social media, yes, but On a deeper level, I think it's a conversation about the nature of creativity and expression itself. Does it even matter what we say or create if no one hears it or can know about it? We're going to talk about that in my interview with Megan Murphy. Megan Murphy, welcome to The Unspeakable. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah. Uh, I know we can talk about all sorts of things, especially topics around feminism, but I actually wanted to focus at least the first part of this conversation on the subject of Twitter. I've been thinking about you a lot in the the last couple of weeks um, because Elon Musk has bought a very large portion of Twitter and a lot of the discussion around that has to do with uh, whether he's going to kind of change the culture of banning people or just sort of policing uh, on that on that site. You are uh, somebody who was permanently banned from from Twitter. And I thought you might be uh, a good person to to talk to about what that's been like, uh, among other things. So <laughs> yeah, my claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so it actually works. You don't you don't need Twitter to uh, to be known. Uh, 
uh, when it comes to Twitter. So, so maybe you could just start by by telling us how in the world that happened. Well, I mean, I have been speaking out about and against um, gender identity ideology. Gender identity ideology is what I call it. It's um, the idea that is popular and trendy and pretty widely accepted among progressives and mainstream media in North America in any case and in the UK that um, you can identify as the opposite sex. So if you're male, if you're a boy, if you're a man, you can maybe feel like a girl on the inside or um, you can just decide that you want to be a woman and change sex simply by saying so um, and vice versa. This is something we've talked about a lot on this show. So I, most of my listeners are familiar. Okay. With okay. Yes. Okay. So I, I started talking about this back in around 2016, I'd say. Um, and I actually testified at the Canadian Senate um, against Canada's gender identity legislation in 2017. And my concerns were primarily to do with women's rights. So I was worried that that this kind of legislation that, um, you know, normalizing this ideology, um, changing policies in order to allow, for example, men to have access to female change rooms, males to be transferred to female prisons, um, men to be competing against women in sport and so on and so forth would harm women and girls. And it has from my perspective. I also, you know, argued at the Senate that I thought that this ide- ideology was was sexist. I thought that the idea that just because a man might look or behave in, in feminine ways, that meant he was female, was a pretty regressive, sexist idea. So anyway, and I, you know, I really had to, I had to fight really, really hard to speak about these things and to talk about these things in Canada um, when I was trying to write about this this legislation in Canadian media, primarily because I was trying to, you know, warn Canadians that there would be consequences if if this legislation passed, uh, because it appeared to me that few really were even paying attention to the fact that this this bill was up for debate and, and was likely going to be passed. And you know, that it wasn't just unequivocally a good thing. You know, people were sort of, the people who were paying attention a little bit were treating it as though it was akin to, you know, like gay rights, you know, like this was a human rights issue and we don't want trans identified people to be discriminated against, which of course we don't. But you know, there's, there was much more at stake that I felt people didn't understand. And I couldn't get published anywhere. Like I pitched to all the same people that I'd pitched to before people who'd published me before nobody would publish anything. You know, I have my own website, thank goodness. So I had been writing about it there, but I'm trying to reach a mainstream Canadian audience, not just my audience that probably already agrees with me for the most part. Had you been functioning as a journalist? Like, what was your background in media before this? Yeah, um, I had been doing journalism. I'd been I'd been doing my podcast my at Feminist Current. My website's called feministcurrent.com. So I'd been writing there. I'd been doing my podcast there. And I'd been, you know, working as a freelance journalist in Canada also and publishing a little bit in the UK as well. And 
you know, needless to say, I was I was talking about this issue a lot on Twitter. Um, Twitter was the primary social media platform that I used. I don't love social media, honestly. I really don't like Facebook. I really I had a private Instagram account and I wasn't particularly interested in having a public Instagram account. I don't want to spend all my time on social media. I wanted to work, you know. Yeah. I'm sure you can understand. Like, it's, how dare you? Yeah, <laughs> we we're like. I don't understand Instagram at all. I can't. I, it's I'm I'm a really bad picture taker, and I just I have no interest in Instagram. No, I'm not a I'm not a visual person. You know, like our medium is is writing. You know, like I'm I wasn't. That's not what I'm good at, and it's not what I'm interested in. It's not particularly suitable for the work that we do. You know. Twitter makes more sense if you're a journalist or a writer. And so that's, you know, where I was getting my message across. And and I was getting a lot of traction. Like, of course, I got a ton of death threats, um, which apparently is fine for Twitter. Um. <laughs> and what does that mean? Because, uh, p- you know, people say a lot, it's really dangerous for especially women journalists on on Twitter. Is that like when when you say you got death threats, how threatening were they? I mean, I'm sorry to be glib, but people who complain about death threats on Twitter are ridiculous. I mean, which is not to say that death threats are ridiculous. I've gotten death threats that did scare me because in Vancouver, you know, I've seen people who were threatening to me in my neighborhood. Um, and at one point I actually was doxxed, not the, kind of docs that we talk about online where somebody has an anonymous account and their their name goes public or their photo goes public but somebody you know posted my home address online publicly okay let so wait i want to understand who these people are let's just back up a little bit so this is around 2016 or so is that um and, and- i was kicked off of twitter in 2018 but yeah i mean i started talking about gender identity probably around 2016 um okay and and you i just want to make sure so people understand so you were living in vancouver so you were known as uh, a feminist writer like what was your kind of positioning in the culture the sort of media sphere yeah a feminist writer and journalist um and you know, my, the, the things that I was writing about, you know, the kind of analysis, the angle, the critiques that I was articulating in terms of my writing and journalism and, and podcasting would probably be called, you know, it would be more along the lines of second wave feminism more radical feminism as opposed to third wave or what some people call liberal feminism, these terms Mm. are not super useful, I don't find. But, you know, like I was, I was critical of prostitution. I was critical of pornography. I was critical of um, things like BDSM, you know, kind of what I, the sexualization of violent sex. Um, Okay. So you're like, 70s feminist yeah you're like a, yes you're, a, you're a throwback yes <laughs> i'm vintage <laughs> yeah, yeah but other you know the women my age like i grew up with third wave feminism so yeah, how old are you i'm 42 okay yeah. okay oh yeah so you're you're um way I, you're not ahead of your time you're you're behind your time but you yeah are, you're 
I'm doing um, it wrong. <laughs> no, but, but okay. So that's interesting. So you, uh, I want to understand like how this kind of developed in you. Did, did you grow up? Like, did you have a feminist mother? Like what were your influences as a younger person? Yeah. My mom was a feminist. So we talked about sexism a lot and my mom is in education. So she, um, she retired like, I don't know, last month or something like that, but she's, she's a prof and she's in the education department. So she, when I was a she's kid, a yeah, she's yeah. a professor. But so when I was a kid, she was studying education. Um, and so we talked a lot about sexism in the classroom. Um, we talked about, you know, the way that boys and girls interact differently in the classroom and how that impacts girls and the fact that, you know, like boys are, more likely to kind of interrupt and speak up more and girls are sort of socialized to be more polite and not to speak up and not to interrupt and things like that. Anyway, I was aware of sexism from a very young age and would like go marching off to the principal's office to complain about sexism and to complain about oh, things. Oh, you're fun. You were a fun kid. That must have made you really popular. I was always like this. <laughs> but, you know, like I was – I I – understood things like objectification, I guess, from a very young age. So I would, I would complain about boys like rating girls' chests. You know, I would say breast size, but at 11, there weren't that many girls who had oh, breasts. Oh, rating? You mean like rate, like on a scale of one? Yeah, like we'd be at the oh pool God, and the really? boys would be like rating girls in their bathing suits. And this is in like grade six. Oh, gosh. So, okay. yeah, I mean... So there's that. And, and when I, when I graduated from high school, I was very, I did very poorly in school. I never went to school and I hated school and it never really worked for me. And I was like anti-authoritarian and I thought school was like, like politically, I thought school was a bad thing. And, you know, like I was like a communist when I was a teenager. Okay. So were you like skipping out and smoking cigarettes? Did you? Yeah. Who, what was your gang? Like, but what were your friends like? Were well, they I was, yeah, I this? was, I was skipping okay. and smoking cigarettes on the corner and also like at the cafe drinking coffee and writing sad poetry about the boys that I loved. Once I finished high school, barely by the skin of my teeth, I wasn't super interested in university and, you know, like I didn't have any money. Like I grew up working class. So it wasn't like if I went to university, my parents were going to pay my way or anything like that. So I was always working full time. And the idea of like trying to attempt to go to university, you know, during like taking night classes seemed unappealing as well for obvious reasons. I kind of just wanted to party, to be honest, like after work, I just wanted to go out drinking. I didn't want to spend my time studying. But at a certain point, I became interested in feminism and women's studies. I actually, I remember reading Ariel Levy's book, um, Female Chauvinist Pigs. Did you read that one? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she's great. Yeah. And that really spoke to me, especially for somebody who'd grown up during third wave feminism, where I felt I was being sold in any case. I don't know if you had this experience or not, but you know, I felt I was being sold this sort of porny girls gone wild, you know, girls, you know, young women should act the same as boys in terms yeah, of sex. Yeah, sort of faux, faux empowerment. So yeah, and yeah. actually we should contextualize this. So the Ariel Levy book came out, I'm going to say like 2000. 
2005, 2004, around there. Is that probably? So, is that so? So yeah. So in you know, people often ask actually, what what is second wave feminism? What's third wave? Some some people say there's a fourth wave. Um, I talked about this actually a little bit in in my book. So um, maybe and it's you know, people draw the lines in different ways. So third wave feminism refers to this post-second wave feminism that started, it was actually started by Rebecca Walker. She's the one that coined the term mm. third third wave, Alice Walker's daughter. And she was very much responding to what she thought were deficiencies in her own upbringing with her extremely famous second wave feminist mother. And so I, I'm not sure, you know, Rebecca Walker, I don't think herself was this like, you know, she was not a purveyor of, of raunch culture, but this kind of um, kind of cartoonish sex positivity arose out of what we were calling third wave feminism. So you started to get into the like kind of kind of like taking back your sexuality. I guess the, the feeling was that the second wave feminists were sort of sex negative and kind of just grouchy and hairy armpits and all that stuff. And so this was going to be like the, you know, sexy be, feminism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was going to be that, fun. <laughs> right. And it coincided with the, the digital revolution and the advent of, uh, online pornography. So suddenly there was a porn culture that existed in a way that it had not in the past. Yeah. And you know, when I, yeah, like I felt like you were, as a woman, you were supposed to enjoy porn culture. So you were supposed to, you weren't supposed to be critical of pornography because you were cool and fun and sexy and you liked sex. And so, you know, porn was a turn on for you too. And, you know, like I would go to strip clubs with my male friends and I hated them. I, I mean, I still hate strip clubs. I think they're disgusting. But, you know, they, I found strip clubs really depressing and unsexy yeah, depressing is the main thing yeah like it yeah. was it's not a sexy place to be it's you know those women are not interested in those men they think that they're losers um they're just kind of nasty gross places to be in and and you know we were expected to participate in the, that culture and pretend that it was fun i had friends when i was in my early 20s or you know probably when i was like 19 20 21 who would female friends who would like go to strip clubs for their birthdays, which I, wow. Yeah. Which I found strange. Um, but I wasn't, did they want to be strippers? Wait, I want to understand this a little bit <laughs> because so I'm 10 years older than you are. So this is not, that was not my experience. So like, what was it? It was like, they were just showing how cool they were or was there a sort of like flirting with lesbianism kind of flavor to it like no not a it wasn't it wasn't about lesbianism i think that it was at that point where bisexuality was sort of cool and trendy right and okay so that thing where if you would go to the bar you would make out with a girl because maybe you like girls too but it was really more about turning boys on that kind of thing right right um and and to seem cool like you were cool and you're down to strip clubs and you were a sexy fun cool girl like that that whole thing yeah. was starting which you know has continued on since in my my opinion but i i always felt uncomfortable with this and didn't really know how to articulate it um and i had been when i was younger you know when i was 17 18 19 trying to have sex like the boys you know like 
the boys were players and they seemed quite empowered. And I wanted to be like that. And I thought that, you know, I could have sex without caring and without, you know, catching feelings as they would say today. <laughs> the kids would say, um, like a disease. Yeah. <laughs> ew. <laughs> and you know, I wanted to be a player. I wanted to be like, I don't know. I was really into hip hop. I still am really into hip hop. And I, you know, there's a song by Too Short called I'm a player that I knew all the words to and would, you know, sing along to or rap along to over and over and over. And I, I wanted to be like that. I didn't want to be hurt by men, um, young men in this case. And, but it, it didn't work. Like I didn't feel good about myself. And I wasn't enjoying sex. I I would, you know, hook up with guys and feel bored and like go home. And so I, I at some point started taking a women's studies class at the community college, a night class. And I think I got really lucky in that regard because, you know, women's studies in college was still sort of women's studies e. Um, and I'll try to explain that a bit, but it wasn't gender studies. Yeah. Like it hadn't become totally this academic, um, gender theory, queer theory thing that it is now, you know, they were still, we were still reading a little bit. We're, we were reading third wave feminist authors too, but we were still reading, you know, Andrew Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. And I came across a book by Jermaine Greer. So I read that and, you know, I, I was reading second wave feminist authors. And so I was able to come up with a criticism of pornography and this modern sex positive, so-called sex positive culture that made so much more sense to me than what I had been taught via third wave feminism, via this like modern sexy, you know, non-radical, like anti-second wave feminism that had been sort of imposed on us, you know, in, during the mid nineties and, and early aughts. The mainstreaming of BDSM, so dominatrixes um, and things like that was happening around this time. Again, this would have been the early aughts. And, you know, this idea so sex positive feminism as it's called or sex positivity or whatever to me sounded a lot just like anything that can be called sex, anything attached to sexuality goes. You can't criticize anything if somebody likes it. If it's sex, it's none of your business. And I had a big problem with that because there's a lot of things that happen within the context and sex, sex of sex and sexuality that are really harmful, particularly to women and girls. You know, and it's not, I'm not interested in telling people what they can do, what they can and can't do in the bedroom. But I do think that we should be having a broader conversation about it. And particularly when we're talking about industries. So this no longer is a private issue when we're talking about the porn industry and the sex trade. This is a, a public thing. This is a business. So I don't know why we don't have a say over how these guys are making money if how they're making money is directly hurting women and girls. So that would have been part of my argument in that context. And in terms of BDSM, I just felt like, you know, a lot of what was happening to young women and girls in the bedroom 
wasn't really for them, but I felt that they were being pressured to pretend as though it was. And a lot of that stuff was coming from pornography and a lot of it was violent. Um, you know, even things like the, the popularization and the normalization of anal sex that was happening when I was a young woman. And I was like, anal sex is for men. Like women don't have a prostate. (laughs) Why would a girl want to have anal sex? Yeah. That I, 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 I'm just old enough to have mostly missed that. And, and then, and then that was of course followed by the choking. Yeah. All this, uh, this thing where we were completely mystifies me. Yeah. Like we're supposed to enjoy violence and we're supposed to enjoy degradation and, and anyone who, says anything about that is a problem. You know, I was constantly being accused of being moralistic, of being a prude, of being like a Christian right winger. And like, you know, like I grew up in a Marxist, feminist, atheist family. Like it was so ridiculous and nonsensical to me that people were calling me all these things. And, and I always, I was almost always the only one like in Canada and in the U S very, very few people were writing critically about prostitution and pornography and BDSM and just third wave feminism in general. And I was super attacked over that. You know, people were constantly trying to cancel me way back then on the left. It was leftists and other feminists who hated me. What did you say that got you banned from Twitter? And when exactly did it happen? What was just let's I want to because a lot of people complain about getting, you know, suspended or shadow banned or whatever. But you were actually permanently banned. So, yeah. How did that all unfold? Yeah. I mean, I think I still don't know exactly how everything went down because they won't tell me. Um, But I was speaking out about gender identity a lot on Twitter and getting a lot of support and traction. Um, Like I said, you know, I also got super attacked. I got lots of death threats and so on and so forth. But I was, you know, people were emboldened by what I was saying. And I think and it was having an impact. So I think I was being targeted, maybe by trans activists who had connections at Twitter, maybe by people working at Twitter who did not want me speaking critically about this stuff. And at a certain point, I, my account was, this was again in 2018, my account was suspended for saying men aren't women though. And I wasn't saying, okay, and this let's let's, this was in where you were responding to something. Yeah. Like, it was part of a conversation. So it wasn't, it wasn't about a specific person. I wasn't, you know, pointing at a person and saying, you're not a woman or you're not a man. Um, I was just responding to somebody in a Twitter thread and said, but men aren't women. Um, so I was suspended for that. That's literally all it was. I'm not, you know, I think some people think. And how do they, how do you know you're suspended? Like, do they send you a, a DM? Like, how do they inform you that you're suspended? Yeah, your account gets locked. And then you get an email saying, in my case, I got an email saying that my account was suspended. It was locked down for 24 hours. Um, and to get my account back, I had to delete the tweet in question. And I, I didn't tell me specifically what rule I broke. It just said for hateful conduct. So okay, but did they say the tweet that they were? Yeah. To? And they referenced that tweet in their okay. email that they sent me. Now this they is said, like a this lack of tweets. due process. 
this, yeah. is, this is kind of like getting accused of sexual assault uh, on a on a campus. You're you're not really told what it is that you did. Yeah, like this is hateful conduct, but you don't know okay. why because it wasn't hateful in any way. Um, and yeah, they don't tell you what rule you broke. Like, how am I supposed to not break these rules if you aren't telling me what rule I'm breaking? You're just like, you're hateful, your account's suspended. I'm like, okay, so how do I prevent this from happening in the future? No way? Cool. And then uh, the second tweet I was locked down for, my account was suspended again for a second tweet um, that was asking, what's the difference between a man and a trans woman? And, I, you know, like, I wasn't being, I wasn't trying to be rude. Um, or facetious. I was trying to get at a point that I've tried to make many, many times over the years. That is, so what happens between, we're talking about a male. You said, you're a male, you're a man today. Now you're identifying as a trans woman. What's different about you today than yesterday? What is it that's making you a woman now or a trans woman, depending on how this man is identified? You're asking a very pragmatic question. Yeah, like, because the point is, you're just saying something. This man is announcing he's a woman, therefore he's a woman. What does a woman mean? What does this mean? What are you talking about? Like, this doesn't make any sense. It means nothing at all. Like, can we at least have some parameters for what's going on here? What's a trans woman? What's a woman? You know, these were all questions that I was asking over and over and over again. It wasn't even trans-identified people necessarily who I was having these mm -hmm. conversations with, just people online. Yeah, people who were in support of gender identity ideology kind of thing. So and you were not ever saying things like, like, these people are crazy. It, I mean, it sounds like you were just, these were, these were pretty banal tweets. So yeah. Was there ever anything where you got like, you know, you got over, you got worked up and said, something i was never bad i mean i don't remember what all my tweets are but i don't i don't think so it's not like i ever said anything that advocated violence or anything horrible like that i don't think i ever said anything that could qualify as bigotry on twitter but who knows i mean i was tweeting for a long time but as far as what i was locked down for and suspended for these tweets are all very banal and basic and not hateful in any way at all. <laughs> and, and there are two. Okay. So there are two tweets. So the first one you got suspended for 24 hours, then you get back up. So how much time elapsed before the second incident? Suppose 24 hours because they locked it, lock you oh. down. You have to delete the tweet and then they let you back on after 24 hours. And then it happened again Oh, immediately um, it happened again. Yeah. And this was a tweet that was already out there. So it wasn't like I came back on and, you know, tweeted oh. the other tweet. It was already out there. <laughs> I just got shut down for another tweet. Like they were combing oh. back through my old tweets and locking me down for older tweets. Um, and then the final one that got me banned was this guy who banned permanently, Jonathan Yaniv, um, who was operating out of Vancouver and he had been going around to estheticians in Vancouver asking oh, them Jessica. to... Oh, well, Jessica. Uh, well, going by Jessica Yaniv. Well, he eventually went by Jessica Yaniv, but at this point he was still going by Jonathan. And, um, oh, and was identifying not as trans at that point? Depending on where he was. Like on, I think sometimes he was identifying as a woman, sometimes he was identifying as a man and his Yelp reviews, he was still Jonathan Yaniv, you know, on Facebook, he was still Jonathan Yaniv. On Twitter, I okay. think he was going sometimes by he and sometimes by she. But, you know, and he still had his full man face, you know, he didn't look like a woman in any way at all. 
And he was asking, he was going around contacting estheticians in the Vancouver area via social media, asking them to give him a Brazilian bikini wax. And a lot of these, these women that he was contacting on social media, these estheticians weren't even working out of salons. You know, a lot of them were just working out of their homes. So very vulnerable. A lot of them were immigrant women who were providing services to other women only, you know, waxing services, bikini waxes. Maybe they were doing a few other kind of spa like services, but you know, obviously they would feel vulnerable and unsafe having a strange guy in their house and they don't wax balls. That's not a service they offer, but this guy was sound like a good idea under any circumstances. No, But, (laughs) but you know, and so, he would ask them to if if he could make an appointment for a Brazilian bikini wax. They would realize he was a man and they would say, no, sorry, we don't offer that service to men. And he would try to extort money out of them and say, you're being transphobic. You know, I'm going to take you to court. And I think I suspect he probably did get money out of some of them. And the ones that refused, he took to a human rights tribunal in B.C., in Canada, accusing them of discrimination. Um, I think like 12 or 13 discrimination. of them against him. And because, how were those cases treated? Well, he lost at the end of the day. Thank goodness. But, you know, his name was kept anonymous in the media. And these women's names were published in the media. Um, these women were put through hell. It was incredibly stressful for them. Some of them lost their businesses in the process. You know, they were essentially being publicly accused of transphobia. And they were just trying to make it. These are just women. These are just like independent estheticians. Again, many of whom were immigrant women, many of whom English was their second language. And they're being accused of transphobia by this crazy man. And I, he is, he's a mentally ill pervert. And I don't know, you can take that out if you want to, but. (laughs) Do you think this was okay, but actually, but so was, was, was he doing this out of some sort of, political activism or what, I mean, you say, you say pervert. I mean, there was a a fetish aspect to this, but like, was he known in the activist community or was this just a kind of isolated? He um, was just an isolated weirdo and he was trying to use this trans issue as a grift. Um, he's, he'd, he'd been doing this kind of thing for a long time. Um, like he would do, he would like order a pizza and then, say that the pizza came and it was all messed up and now you owe him free pizzas for life. He was that kind of guy. <laughs> okay. So this is like the better call Saul of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, per, per, you know, strange <laughs> activist perversions. Okay. Uh, this is, yeah, this is like a, a new version of the slip and fall, uh, scam. Okay. Yeah. So I, okay. I, I was like, we, we were hearing about this guy and reading about this guy in the media and, and tweeting about him and a, and a blogger, a female blogger who is anonymous. So I can't say who found some information about him online, um, found that he'd, you know, been posting all these Yelp reviews and that he had a long history of this kind of grift that I just talked about. And, and they also found some information about him that he'd been kind of predatorial around underage girls, you know, that he'd been engaging with some underage girls online on social media kind of thing and published this information in a blog post and published his name, which again had been kept anonymous by the media under a publication ban. 
and a court-ordered publication ban. So I posted a link to the blog post and said, is it true that JY, he was being referred to as JY in the media, JY is Jonathan Yaniv. And he was still active on Twitter at the time. And so I had a link to his Twitter account. And it was confirmed that it was him via uh, this blog and, and online evidence that it was the same guy. So I tweeted in response to myself, yeah, it's him. And then my account was permanently suspended for life. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. And again, they didn't tell me what rule I broke. Um, that Later that very night, this was on a Friday, a Friday night that my, my Twitter account was, was permanently locked down. And later that night... Pink News published an article saying that Twitter had a new rule against misgendering, <laughs> which is when you refer to, uh, you know, a man who identifies as a woman as he, for example. And mm -hmm. so I assumed that it was that rule that I broke, but I didn't know. And that wasn't a, a public rule that anyone was really aware of before that. Right. I, they just sent so me an email. It wasn't for saying the name. It wasn't for saying the name. It was for... For calling him he. I, again, you okay. know, they just, they send you an email. They sent me an email. They show this tweet. This is the tweet that you're getting banned for, which was, yeah, it's him. That was the only tweet that they listed. 
and they say, you know, for hateful conduct. And then that's that. And I appealed. I've appealed many, many, many times. I've tried to contact Twitter. I've done everything in my power to get an answer, to find out why I was banned, to get my account back. And, you know, you don't, you get nothing back from them or you get a form response. Um, no one from Twitter has ever engaged with me directly around all this. And they called this hateful conduct. Right. On a platform where people act atrociously around yeah. the Yeah. I mean, like I said, I've, I've received death threats on Twitter many times. Um, and Twitter doesn't do anything about that stuff. How many followers did you have at this time? I think I had around 20,000 followers. So this was a big blow. Yeah. How big a part of your life was Twitter? Like how dependent were you on Twitter to, to get your, you know, to, to, promote your stories or just kind of I mean almost wholly dependent like I was really upset I cried like I was scared I was like how am I going to make a living like how am I going to like I was like who's going to publish me if I don't have a Twitter account because people think it sounds stupid but if you're an independent writer or an independent journalist a big reason that people are going to publish you is because you have a big following and you can tweet out the link yeah you know like see this is this yeah if you this have no actually, audience, then people aren't going to publish you. I'm sorry. That's how things work now. Right. I mean, people say Twitter is not real life, but if you're in the media, it it kind of is. I mean, and that's kind of the main reason I wanted to to talk with you because like it's, it's really hard, I think, for people to get their minds around and it sounds petty even just saying it like, mm-hmm. but unfortunately we're, we're in a world where this, this is the case. So, okay. So like, how did you build back your life? I mean, seriously, <laughs> like you, because, you know, if, if you are a freelancer, it, you really have to be an entrepreneur. You effectively own your own business. Mm-hmm. So they have taken away your ability to communicate your, your, your business. I mean, to really do, to do business at all. So exactly. what was the first thing that you did? I mean, yeah, like I didn't work for anyone else. I didn't work for, I didn't have institutional backing. I just, I'm fully independent. It's really just me. Um, anything that I produce or publish is published on my own platform or social media, or, you know, I would, I, I do some freelance writing also. So uh, I was banned from Twitter. That was the platform I was primarily using. I never suspected I would be banned from Twitter. I remember after I got banned, I was talking to John Kay. He was interviewing me for the Quillette podcast. And he was like, oh, but you must have, you know, suspected you might get banned. Like he sort of thought that I was like poking at Twitter and sort of trying to get banned. And I was like, what? No, I I would never want to get banned from Twitter. Like, I need Twitter. And I like Twitter. Lots of people hate Twitter and they see it as like a burden and they don't want to use it. But I actually enjoyed using Twitter. I found it. And you had a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And so you were writing on on feminist current and you had the podcast at that time. Yeah. I had the podcast. Well now, so once I got banned from Twitter, I started a second podcast. So once I got banned from Twitter, I had to start a public Facebook page, a public Instagram page. I had to start like a YouTube account. Like I didn't have any of this other stuff. And you know, yeah. So I started a a YouTube channel, um, which became my, my second podcast slash YouTube show, the same drugs. 
the other podcast was attached to Feminist Current. So that was the Feminist Current podcast. And yeah, it was, it was really stressful. Um, I did, I got a lot of media attention when I was banned from Twitter and I got a lot of support from a lot of people. So that was good. So I think some people think, oh, well, it's like a fair trade off because you built a different audience through getting banned from Twitter, which is true in some ways, because a lot of people heard about me who wouldn't have otherwise and thought that what happened was wrong. And I, I, it was beneficial in some ways to me because I was connected to all these people that I wouldn't have been connected to otherwise, really for political reasons. Like, I, you know, right wing people, libertarian people, right. people who the aren't criminals. Yeah. 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 So, and I got much more involved in the free speech debate after that and was started paying a lot more attention to um, speech on, on social media and, you know, what was being considered hate speech on social media and the impact of social media on culture in general. You know, people say, like you just said, you know, like people act like it's no big thing. Oh, it's just Twitter. But this is where public conversations happen. This is the public square. And this is where people access information. And this is where people learn what ideas are okay to talk about. You know, Twitter has decided you can't say certain things. Certain things constitute hate speech. Certain information is dangerous and you can't publish that information. You know, they have a huge, huge, huge influence. And this is a corporation. This is a company that is determining what information we can share and access online, never mind what we're allowed to speak about. So what is your business model? How's it going? (laughs) How's podcasting going? I mean, like, it's so funny, because I never had a plan. Like, I'm not a money person. I'm like, I just this is what I want to say. And this is what I want to do. So I'm just gonna do it. And luckily, people started supporting me. So I was able to continue doing it. But I like I've just built up an audience over the years. Um, So and I've built up a subscriber base over the years. And so I've built up a donor base over the years that way. Um, So people subscribe to Feminist Current and people sign up for monthly donations. And, you know, I've also since, you know, I've been running Feminist Current for almost 10 years And I started The Same Drugs, which is my YouTube channel slash podcast um, a couple years ago. So I've been working on building that up and building up an audience and building up a subscriber base. Um, I started a Substack last month. Oh, Oh, okay. But wait, why is it called The Same Drugs? That's the name of your... Is that the name of the whole YouTube channel or that's the show itself? That's the show. And uh, my Substack that I started last month is also called The Same Drugs. So that's sort of like my new project. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons. The Same Drugs is a reference to a Chance the Rapper song that I really like. I'm a big Chance the Rapper fan. And it's like, we don't do the same drugs anymore. So it was sort of about like separating from... uh, Like it's, it's about that whole heterodox thinking. So separating from mainstream narratives... Um, But also that I felt like I saw people all moving in that direction around the same time. I mean, you were part of that 
move towards the intellectual dark web, as it was <laughs> called in the past. We don't use that yeah, term anymore. I was, uh, I, was um, I know, the, the intellectual dork web. <laughs> myself. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, it's funny. It's like you were saying, I, I haven't changed. I, I've been writing this same way for my whole career. I mean, I've been looking at the world in the same counterintuitive sort of, you know, I, I want to be surprising to the reader. There, I, I really, I know it's such a cliche, like, you know, oh, the, I didn't leave the left, the left left me or whatever it is, you know, but I I don't, it, it really, this idea that somehow I've been radicalized or I've, I've changed, um, I just don't think it's true. I think I just refuse to change my tune. I just... It's like a bullshit detector thing that has always been in place. And now the bullshit is like coming from inside the house. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've deviated from the left for sure. Um, but I was always, you know, I was always an enemy to the left, which, you know, there were <laughs> still some left radical <laughs> feminists, despite being an Andrea Dworkin <laughs> feminist. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, in Canada, the Canadian left and Canadian feminists always were trying to cancel me. I've, I've been getting canceled since, you know, 2015, at least they were trying to have me fired. I used to work for this, uh, this lefty online magazine called rabble.ca that was, you know, I, you know, primarily funded by unions. It was like a, a labor movement magazine. It was a socialist magazine and uh, those, you know, Canadian leftists started this massive petition to have me fired when I was working as an editor for that website. And it didn't work. Because of what you were writing in Feminist Current? Yeah, yeah. Because of what I was trying to publish. Because, you know, I was, according to them, whorephobic and transphobic. And they accused, they accused me of everything that they can accuse anybody of the white supremacy, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. I think I criticized like a nude photo spread of Laverne Cox, which makes me a racist and a transphobic person. Yeah, that's person. an intersectional <laughs> phobia. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, I think that was primarily, I think, due to my my writing against the the sex trade, um, because all of those people were advocating to, to legalize and fully decriminalize the sex trade. And I was advocating against that. And anyway, I've always been guilty of wrong think. Always. <laughs> Yeah, um, I've That's sort of cha so I've changed my tune on things like you know socialism and communism and a lot of these leftist ideologies. I've sort of put aside, but the left never really wanted me. It's it's kind of hard to be um, a socialist when you have no choice but to build your own business. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you have to How be a capitalist. Well, I'm not. Yeah. I don't identify as a socialist anymore. Like, I don't. Right, think but that's, I mean. I just like as more and more of us have had to pivot and start from the bottom. I mean, I find myself, you know, I've said this before, like I, I have in my 25 year career, I have never worked harder and longer hours for less money probably ever. I mean, maybe when I was starting off in my early and mid twenties, like I was, you know, working day jobs and then coming home and writing all night and, you know, pitching editors and this kind of thing, furious, furiously working and obsessed. But um, it's kind of come back around to that. And, you know, creative people are not necessarily inherently good at 
building businesses and figuring mm-hmm. out how to make money. So like, how, how does that work for you? I, I think this is really interesting. I mean, I think people, people find this, this interesting as we all kind of find our way in this new economy. Yeah. I mean, I'm very bad at making money. I wish that that was something I'm good at, but I'm not. And part of that is because again, like what I care about is doing the work. So I don't have the time or interest to think about the money making end of things. I'm just sort of like hopeful that people will donate to support the work that I do. But I mean, I work all the time. Like I'm sure you work all the time. Like it's not like I have work hours. I just work all the time. And if I'm not working, like I have to physically leave my house so that I'm not near my laptop because otherwise I just like I work until two or three in the morning every night if I'm home. Um, well, I bring so my laptop with me. I intentionally I, I try like, not to, because <laughs> otherwise I'll just I, work I, all the time. I know. Well, I have lately been like, if I like, I found myself like sitting in my car, like, and I like, oh, I have to, you know, and I'll like do yeah. the the hotspot so I can get online and do something I forgot I had to do. Oh I, well, I mean, yeah, because if you're just sitting somewhere and you're not working, you're wasting your time. Like I'm like, That's if right. I'm somewhere and I'm not doing anything, I'm like, I could be working right now. Um, Uh, like if I go, I think people think so like I moved to Mexico about a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah. You're living in Mexico. Yeah. See, I just thought you were on vacation. (laughs) I thought, I know everyone thinks I'm on vacation, but I'm not on vacation. Like I I could never (laughs) do that. Wow. Oh, okay. So tell me about that. No, I mean, I don't take vacations. Like I'll like go places, but I go and work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I still do fun things. Don't get me wrong. I like my life. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I didn't really mean to, but like back in January of last year, we were all in lockdown. It was during this old COVID thing. You probably remember that. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was just, I couldn't take the lockdowns. I was like, I can't handle this. I was super depressed. I was full of anxiety. And I'm not a very depressed, full of anxiety kind of person. I'm a pretty mentally stable person. I've never really suffered from depression or anxiety. I mean, obviously you get depressed for specific reasons, like somebody breaks up with you and you're sad. Um, But uh, Or getting kicked off Twitter. Yeah, you're sad about getting kicked off Twitter. Yeah, those things are upsetting. The ultimate breakup. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and I was also getting really freaked out about what the Canadian government was doing around, like the liberal government in Canada is trying to push through all these like online hate speech bills. So they're trying to limit what Canadians can say and produce in Canada, particularly online. And I was like... I'm not going to be able to work here. I'm going to be thrown in jail. Like, you know, everything that I say are, you know, these are things that the liberal government doesn't want me saying. And these are the exact things that the liberal government is going to decide you're not allowed to say on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. And I'm going to get shut down or persecuted. So I, and, and yeah, I was, I was opposed to the lockdowns. I was opposed to all these uh, vaccine mandates. I was scared that I wasn't going to be allowed to leave the country if I didn't leave. So I left, you know, I did manage to work. I managed to figure it out. It's definitely harder. And I'm obviously still trying to work out a stable Wi-Fi connection, for example. Um, but I was like, okay, I, I am able to live here and I am able to work here. 
I'm so much happier here. I felt free. I, you know, liked my friends better. I felt like I could speak openly about everything here in oh, a way wow. that I couldn't Did in you Vancouver. Know Did you know people before? No. Like, are you, I don't know if you want to say exactly where you are, but are you in like a metropolitan area? No, I'm in Sayulita. I mean, I said where I was on Joe Rogan, so I can't really keep it a secret. Okay. <laughs> but uh, it's a, it's like a little... Now everyone's going to know that you're saying it on the unspeakable, so <laughs> take it to the next level. Now the whole okay. world will know. So it's like a little beach surf town. It's about an hour away from Puerto Vallarta. And, you know, it's a big, like a lot of tourists come here, but it's still a really small town and it's still developing. And, you know, the power goes out pretty regularly, especially during the the summer is like the stormy season. So the power will go out, you know, a few times a week. And, um, which is not great if you're working online. (laughs) Not good for the YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of people here, a lot of the, the, you know, people who came here from the U S and Canada sort of came for the same reasons that I did like to be free and people in Vancouver are very Canadian, but they're very, you know, they're, they think of themselves as progressive left-wing people and they're all scared of each other. Um, so they kind of toe the party line, you know, in, you know, the, in the context of gender identity, for example, there's many other examples too, but you know, I, it was not easy for me to live in Vancouver. It was hard. Like a lot of my friends had abandoned me and ghosted me, or they were like, you know, like, we can still be friends, but I can't really, you know, follow you on social media or be seen with you in public. And I was like, mm, go wow. fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and I was getting, you know, and I was scared to be out in public in Vancouver. You know, people sometimes would like come up to me and like scream at me in public. And there was a lot of activists who I felt genuinely scared of in Vancouver, you know, men who were very threatening and I was scared to go places. And I was, yeah, I'd been treated really badly by a lot of people there. And it wasn't like that here. Nobody here cared what I did or said. They were like, you're our friend. Like, good for you. But anyway, you, let's are, go talk about something else. <laughs> are you saying that this is an enclave of people who have come from like the US and Canada over culture war stuff? Like is that like there's a little like sort of heterodox expatriate community. Some of them did, not everybody. I mean, people come here for all sorts of reasons. And of course, there's a ton of Mexicans who live here too. And the Mexican people who live here don't give a shit about culture wars. <laughs> right. Well, they'll they'll, they'll get there. Okay. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. Gosh, it's like there's to do like a reality show, like Heterodox Island or something. <laughs> but yeah, like a lot of people here had left because they were unhappy with the COVID measures and the lockdowns and what the Canadian government was doing and what, you know, the American government oh, right. was doing. Right. Um, right. And there were people yeah. who didn't want to participate in that. I don't know what your personal situation is, and you don't have to go into that necessarily, but. You know, I've been thinking more and more about how I am able to speak up in part, not just because I'm not affiliated with some university or, you know, I don't have some job that I'm beholden to, 
like, I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. I'm not married. My parents are not alive. I don't have anybody to drag down with me if I get canceled or something like that. And I think that has a profound effect on one's ability to speak. I think that having a family and kids would probably make it harder to say whatever you want just because if you lose your job or like your husband loses his job because of you, um, that obviously has a big impact. You I know, know people to, that's happened to. Yeah. I mean, I know people, but like, it's not even just losing your livelihood. I mean, your kids could be bullied at school. Yeah. Right. Like if mom's problematic, that could make life really hard for kids. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I, I know a lot of moms who are speaking out about the gender identity thing. I mean, one of those people is Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keene, and she has kids, although they're, they're teenagers. Um, and she has a partner and she's been very, also she's British. She's British. (laughs) They're different, (laughs) but yeah, I do. I mean, I, I am freer in a number of ways. Obviously I could just pick up and move to Mexico because I wasn't tied to a job and I didn't have kids who needed to be in school and I didn't have a husband with some job in Vancouver where he had to stay put. I don't own a house. I don't own anything. You know, like Mm -hmm. being poor is not always a totally bad thing. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I don't have any assets. What are your hopes moving forward? What do you want your platform to be? I mean, Actually, do you want to get on Twitter if Elon Musk turned around and said, "Okay, Megan Murphy, uh, you're, you're you're back, you're back on board." Would you even do that? Yeah, I really do want to get back on Twitter. I feel like I've been erased from the conversation. Like I feel like people forget about me, and I'm trying to I'm trying to build this platform, and I'm trying to make a living. And I don't want to sound whiny, but you know, it's just, it's really, really hard to build an audience um, and to build a platform and to make something sustainable. Um, If you don't have access to social media now, I would say it's practically impossible to do. And, you know, like, and I do have a following on Instagram and I do have a bit of a following on Facebook, but yeah, I mean, Twitter is sort of the place where you participate in the conversation. If you're in media, if you're a writer, if you're a journalist, um, that's where these conversations are happening. And I think you do kind of get a bit erased if you're not there and you're not participating. Well, Megan, it's great to talk with you always. And um, I, will, uh, I, will, I will tweet about this interview. <laughs> and um, if I get, uh, if I get uh, thrown off Twitter as a result, I will <laughs> see you in Mexico. Well, I hope you don't get thrown off Twitter. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really enjoy your podcast. It's uh, one of the few, I mean, we all know how little time we have. So there's only a few podcasts that I can listen to. So I listen to your podcast. Oh. I listen to Trigonometry. I listen to uh, Barry Weiss's podcast. I listen to Rogan. Um, but you're doing a really good job. So I hope people pay you for it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, we, we Megans with an H have to stick together. We, we both spell our names. The Solidarity way, with Megans with an H. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, Megan. Well, thank you again and uh, continued good luck. Thank you. Thank you. You too. That was my conversation with Megan Murphy. She's the founder and editor of Feminist Current and the host of the Feminist Current podcast. 
She also hosts the Same Drugs podcast on YouTube, and you can find her on Substack and Instagram, though she remains banned from Twitter since 2018. And though she was not banned from her native Canada, she's currently based in Mexico. This is the Unspeakable Podcast, currently based in Los Angeles. If you'd like to support the show, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and join at any number of levels. If Patreon is not your thing, you can make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking on the donate button on the homepage. If donating money is not your thing, totally understandable. You can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That is actually tremendously helpful uh, if it's a positive review, of course. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.